So this is Psalm 49 to the uh, chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any, by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person, person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Selah. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave, far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him, though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in dishonor, yet does not understand, is like the beasts that perish. Okay, our sermon today is going to be Genesis 42, 18 through 28, if you're following along in your Bible, and then I'll read the verses first, and then we'll get into it. Uh, starting in the 18th verse, Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you... Go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them saying, did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us but they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from, from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Now I want to explain, as I did last week, that uh, this particular sermon is kind of an interim sermon. It's leading to a conclusion. And so, just like last week, where it kind of ended abruptly, we got some pictures. You really have to remember these pictures in order to understand what's going on and what it's leading to. But when we get to that, you know, those sermons that it's leading to, it really is astonishing. So, don't be uh, disappointed if it's it's not anticlimactic, but if it ends kind of on a, uh, uh, you know, uh, an anticipatory note. That's what I'm getting at there. And the sons of Israel had come to the favorite son of the father, and they had taken him and thrown him into the pit, and they sold him off to the Gentiles, where he became the ruler of all the land of Egypt. And now that there has been an extended famine in the land, they're in need of food. And so they have been sent to Egypt to find it there. However, Joseph recognized them, and he accused them of being spies, something that we saw in a previous sermon. He threw them into prison and said that they must remain in Egypt while one of them brings the younger brother back to prove that their story is true. With the start of our verses, it is now the third day, and all but one of them will be released to carry out the task. Joseph is using time and circumstance to bring about a change in his brothers before he reveals himself to them. And this is what Jesus has been doing as well. Through the uh, 
time, the, the many millennia he's been working on this. Now, the Bible is just a couple days where he's doing this, maybe a half a year or so. Jesus is working on a much larger time frame. But the work is being done in both Joseph and his brothers and in Jesus and Israel. And a time of reunion is coming and reconciliation is ahead for both of them. Our text verse today comes from Romans chapter 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And he's speaking of Israel. This is Paul writing about Israel. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Paul's answer, certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall, meaning what happened to them in the past, is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness Really, great times are ahead because of Israel's coming restoration with Jesus Christ. But had Israel not fallen, the promises of the Old Testament kingdom age would have been realized immediately. However, in his infinite wisdom and to serve the greater good, Israel went into a time of blindness, not seeing their Messiah for who he is. But that time will be ending and the healing process is going to come. Eventually, they will see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of their hopes and they will confess him as their own. And it probably will not be long now. They're back in the land, and the times are coming to their fulfillment, just as his word shows. So, let's go there again today and see the continuation of this beautiful unfolding story. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. As usual, I have three thoughts for you today. The first is time to reflect on deeds of the past. This is verses 18 through 21. Verse 18 says, Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. Now the last verse that we read last week said, So he put them all together in prison three days. Now we need to remember, as I explained last week, that any part of a day in the Bible is considered a day. If we do the same thing in uh, America today. If somebody arrives at 3 p.m. on Monday, that is considered a day. When Christ rose on Sunday morning, that's considered a day. And it's important to understand this because we're now told that it is the third day since the brothers were bound in prison. The Bible gave the number and it's, so it, it's asking us to think on that number and why he put it in there. The Jews rejected Jesus Christ and they have been in exile for 2,000 years. So consider that their time in prison. The brothers had time for reflection while they're there in prison and the Jewish people have had the past 2,000 years as a time of reflection while they have been dispersed from their land. And now they can look back on that time and reflect on it and put it in its proper perspective. And this is what the Bible is showing us about this. Because the Jewish people were exiled. They went and they codified their own Jewish law through the Mishnah and the Gemara. They've come up with all of these traditions. And they're going to be able at some point to look back and say, this is where we erred. Here's the Bible and it speaks of Jesus and Jesus came and the New Testament records that and they're going to be able to make this time of reflection, make this mental connection just as the brothers are going to in the sermon today. That's what's going on and the same thing happens in our own life because things happen in our life that we think, oh, I want to get this done or I want to get this done and all of a sudden there's this, this sudden uh, you know, stopping of what you're planning. And you think, why is this going on? But after that time is done, you look back and you say, I needed that time in order to grow. A perfect example of this is me with my college. You know, I was in high school and I would have been a very good student if I had simply paid attention to my homework. I know I could have gotten straight A's. I have no doubt about it. But instead, you know, I did everything except my homework and I got B's and C's. And I was not ready to go to college. Eventually, I joined the Air Force, and they had this program where you could get a, a college degree, and uh, I did it by taking what's called CLEP tests. A CLEP test is where you take a, uh, a test, and if you do well enough in it, they give you a, uh, a, a, a what is it, a three or four credit hours towards your college degree. And I pretty much clept out of my two-year college degree with the Air Force. In fact, they did a uh, story on me for the entire uh, Stars and Stripes magazine because they said, this is something that everybody can do, and it's free to you. Take advantage of it. So they used me as an example, and it was published all over the, the Far East, is that you can use this resource. But I still wasn't ready to finish my college. 
So I get off, I come back uh, out of the Air Force, I come back to Florida, I uh, uh, get into a job, and then I quit that job, and I went and mined gold for a summer up in Alaska. I came back and started a business, got back into my old job, and finally I met the Lord, and I wanted to be a pastor. And I went to my pastor, and I said, well, what do I need to do to get ordained? And he says, well, I want you to have a four-year degree from a Bible college. And I said, okay, so I went to Bible college. And by this time, I was ready to do 100% the best that I could do, unlike in, in high school. And so I applied myself and I got straight A's all the way through it. And uh, I also got an ordina ordination with it because my pastor, or actually a different pastor by then, but they ordained me because I had what they had required. And so these times of reflection in your life serve a purpose, even though you think, you know, I'm kind of idling or drifting by or I'm stuck in prison or whatever it is, God is using it. Keep that kind of thing in mind as you're going through your day that God has you exactly, exactly where he wants you. And as long as you can perceive that and that he's right there at your right hand, then everything is fine no matter what comes your way. Anyway, these brothers right now are being prepared for an open meeting with Joseph by what he's doing. He's been preparing them for it. And this looks forward to the coming meeting between Israel and Jesus. And the book of Hosea gives us a very interesting insight into this. I want to read it to you and then I'll explain it to you. This is from Hosea chapter 6. It says, come and let us return to the Lord. This is Israel at some point in the future saying we're going to return to the Lord. For he has torn, think of their exile in the past 2,000 years, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Well, it's obvious that he's not speaking of two literal days in this. If you take the context of what's being said, and we know the duration of an exile from Jerusalem and uh, from God's presence, we know that it must be speaking of what the Bible speaks of. As it says in Psalm 90, verse 4, and in 2 Peter 3, 8, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so by using that example, which occurs many, many times throughout the Bible, we can apply that to this particular scripture. And we can see that Israel will be revived after two days and raised up on the third day. They are now revived as a people and it's been after two days or 2,000 years. And then after the tribulation period, they will be raised up and that'll be on the third day. This time of the brothers in prison and then being released on the third day appears to be a brief picture of that before the story continues. And so Joseph now says to them, Ha Elohim Ani Yare, the God I do fear. He uses a definite article in front of God saying, the God. Now you wouldn't get this in the English translations, and that's why it's so interesting to go back and read the Hebrew. This would have been right here a huge relief to the brothers, because if this person fears the God, and not just one of the many Egyptian gods, then he would in essence be their ally in the truth. People swear by God all the time without being honest. But when the governor of an entire land, such as Egypt, speaks to them as fearing the God, when he had no need to because of his position and authority, then they can be confident that whatever he does is going to be completely fair to them. And as an example, because I try to think of mental examples so that you can grasp what I'm saying, think of Ronald Reagan. This is a very very uh, well-known, very loved president, but he was also a man of integrity. He wouldn't lie, okay? If you walked into the White House and into the Oval Office and talked to him, he could simply say to you, you know what, I promise that I'm going to get your aunt that presidential pardon, or I promise that we will support your business for a defense contract, and you'd know that it was the truth. But as we've seen with many presidents throughout our history, and what is continuously revealed in our precedents even to this day is that most of them are not very honest. They say things which are not true, okay? But as the president of the land, you have no higher authority to go to. So you have to take him at his word. So if that authority says, I swear by the God that I will do this thing, he's now elevated it beyond himself. And that is what Joseph is doing here. That's what's so important about the term that he's using. It is no longer just his word, but it is his vow in the presence of the God. Verse 19, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. Because he has invoked the God, he is now obligating himself to the God. In response to that premise, he says, if you 
are honest men. There's a subtle hint here. I am completely honest because I am accountable to the God. Now we will see if you are completely honest to me because you are accountable to me. And as an offer of good faith in himself and in the expectancy of good faith from them, he turns his original edict, which said that nine of them would remain in jail and one would go back to Canaan. Now nine of them can go back to uh, Canaan and only one will remain in jail. The rest are told that they can carry this grain back to their houses because of the famine. Now, there's no doubt that Joseph intended to let them go all along because he knew his family would need food. Okay, but by keeping them in jail for three days, he'd know that it would impress on them that they were completely at his disposal. He knows the famine's going to be seven years. They don't know this, but he has the revelation from God. He knows they will need more food because of the long time and the amount of food that they're going to take with them. And he knows that there will be one that remains in jail to remind them that they needed to do exactly what he's told them. He's using exceptional wisdom while allowing them to see his mercy and his grace towards them. Go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. I know there is a need which must be fulfilled. Take the food to your children, servants, and spouses. The food will sustain you. So do as I have willed. Jesus has written all over this account. He's protected Israel over the past 2,000 years. Now, they rejected him. They nailed him to a cross, as we all did with our own sins. But I'm saying the Jewish people were particularly responsible because he came to them. But he has kept them as a people, just as he promised all the way throughout the Old Testament, that this would be his covenant with these people that he would never break. Okay? And he has promised them this. And so his vow must stand. They may suffer hardship, but he will never completely abandon them. He has faithfully provided the grain that they need to live. So we go to verse 20. And bring your youngest brother to me so that your words will be verified and you shall not die. After his words of release and his implicit vow of integrity towards them, he gives an explicit warning. The Hebrew says emphatically, and your brother, the little one, you shall cause to come to me. And as a reminder why, he says, and you shall not die. Without Benjamin, there will be no sense in returning to Egypt for more food, and they will die. Or without ben Benjamin, if they return to Egypt for more food, they will die. Either way, without him being included, they will not make it through the ordeal ahead. Now, it's a little bit early for me to introduce this, but we should try to determine why Benjamin didn't come and who he's picturing. And I'm not talking about Jacob's love for him. I'm talking about the picture that the Bible's trying to make. Jacob is Israel. He's no longer the picture of Christ, but he's picturing Israel, the collective Israel of all of the ages. The brothers are the individual tribes, and we've seen this again and again in these sermons. Rachel, who is Jacob's beloved wife, pictured in all of the sermons that she was used, uh, the New Testament grace of God. You had Leah picturing the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and Rachel the New Covenant. Joseph is the picture of Christ here, and he is the one to add Gentiles into salvation. Hence, his name is Yosef. He shall add. But Benjamin is also a son of Rachel. He actually pictures Christ in another way. In this verse, he is called Achichem Hakatan, your brother, the little one. Benjamin is the youngest, but I got to tell you something. He's over 30 years old at this point. He's not a baby. But the term is used to point us to a group of people in the New Testament. In Luke 12, verse 32 uh, he cites Jesus when speaking to the laws who were willing to follow him. And here's what Jesus says. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Benjamin then is picturing Christ, but also those who are in Christ from Israel. He's the youngest of Israel and yet the cherished and beloved of Israel because of Jesus. And this is going to be clarified in the sermons ahead. So don't think I'm just making stuff up. You're going to see this more clearly. Later, we're going to see that Jacob adopts Joseph's sons as his own, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so it becomes clear here. The Gentile people who are in Jesus Christ are pictured by Joseph's marriage to a Gentile. The Jews who are in Christ are pictured by Benjamin, the Jews who have called on Jesus. Verse 20 continues, and they did so. One is left in prison. The others get their things ready for the trek back to Canaan. But as they do... The events of the past three days come out. 
What was a time of reflection in prison has become a time of regret and repentance now that they've been released. Verse 21, then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. I want to tell you something, and this is going to be kind of shocking if you think about it. In the entire book of Genesis, this is the only time that sin is personally acknowledged. Imagine that. This book covers 2,500 years of human history, and it contains some of the greatest acts of wickedness in the entire Bible, and yet personally acknowledging wrongdoing before God is as rare as this one verse that we're looking at right here. Their short time in prison, among other things, has now led to one of the most prominent examples of the power of conscience in the entire Bible. It's been about 22 years since they sold Joseph off, first throwing him into the pit and then selling him off to Egypt. During all of that time, it appears that they had never taken the time to reflect on what they had done. But the conscience is a powerful force which will eventually find its rightful place. And indeed, Everything done by Joseph has been specifically targeted to remind them of what they had done. Genesis 37 says that they conspired against Joseph to kill him. Now in this chapter, Joseph has accused them of being in a conspiracy to spy on Egypt. Joseph pleaded with his brothers and they would not listen. And now they have come to him and pleaded for food and Joseph wouldn't listen. They threw him into a pit and he threw them into prison. The account drips with irony and everything that has happened has been precisely arranged by him to prompt their memories and to hopefully awaken their conscience and it succeeded. Throughout the Bible, there are all kinds of examples of people who are conscience-stricken over guilt. David is a perfect example of that. Then there are those people whose consciences are seared to the point where nothing, no matter how wicked it is, bothers them at all. In them, the conscience will have all of eternity to sort out the actions left unattended in this life. There are also examples of those whose consciences are clean. Others have been shown to have their consciences purified. There are those who suffer as if they were wrongdoers, and yet they did nothing wrong. Instead, the Bible says their conscience remained undefiled because of right living. If you do a study on the work of the conscience in the Bible, it reveals almost every possible scenario that one could think of among human beings. And this verse here shows us that when we are put into the same position as those that we have harmed, it can lead to an understanding of what they went through and a remorse in our conscience. Perfect example. You've got somebody that steals. He steals and steals and he has no conscience about it. And then somebody steals from him. And all of a sudden they say, man, that, that really stunk. I didn't like that. And they now have developed a conscience because the action's been taken against them. Probably a more pertinent example would be adultery. You have people that commit adultery and they think, ah, oh, it's okay. My wife or my husband doesn't know. And, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying myself and what they don't know won't hurt them. But when the other spouse commits adultery against them and they find out about it, it's very painful. It's almost sometimes impossible to overcome. And this is what Joseph has done by targeting the exact same specifics which were done to him into his brothers so that it would bring out these memories and, and correct their attitude. More than Joseph's own story, though, is the greater picture of Jesus and Israel. Joseph was in the anguish of his soul, and they wouldn't hear. They wouldn't listen. Jesus was in the anguish of his soul, and those around him wouldn't listen as well. Now, in the 22nd Psalm, and I gave this pattern uh, back in Genesis 37, but I'm going to repeat it again, and I'm going to add to it with the brothers and Joseph in this uh, particular account. In the 22nd Psalm, the same word for Joseph's anguish at that time when he was in the pit is applied to the anguish of Jesus. The parallel between the two is simply remarkable. In these words, we can almost feel the pain of both of them and reflect on how they must have felt. So I'm going to read you those verses from the 22nd Psalm. It said, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble. And the word there, trouble, is sarah. That's a Hebrew word, trouble or distress. Trouble is near. 
for there is none to help me. And that's the word that was used about Joseph when he was in the pit back in uh, Genesis 37. It goes on. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, if it seems, though, that the connection between Joseph and Jesus makes sense, but the one between uh, Joseph and Israel is a stretch. I should note that the same term in the verse that we're looking at right now is used for both Joseph and what the brothers are now facing. The verse says, we saw the anguish, that same word that was applied back in 37 and that's applied in uh, the 22nd Psalm. We saw the anguish, the tsara of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress, this tsara has come upon us. Both anguish and distress are this word Sarah. As was applied to Jesus in the 22nd Psalm, so was applied to Israel in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. So what I want you to remember now is that the brothers are picturing something that is future to us now, the tribulation period before the reconciliation with Jesus. And Jeremiah 30, verse 7 is speaking of this same time in human history. Listen to what it says. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, Sarah, but he shall be saved out of it. That's speaking of the tribulation period. And any scholar that knows their Bible even this much will admit that. This is a future prophetic uh, verse in Jeremiah 37, which is speaking of Israel. So the com comparison between Israel and the brothers and Joseph and Jesus is complete in the verse we're looking at right now. The term Jacob's trouble is speaking of the tribulation period, and that is going to happen after the rapture of the church. What Joseph suffered, the brothers will now face. What Jesus suffered, Israel will also endure. These parallels should not be missed. Joseph came through his ordeal and is in the process right now in these verses of being reconciled to his brothers. And Jesus, he made it through his ordeal as well. And he is even today working towards that great moment of reconciliation with his own brothers, Israel. The tribulation period, unfortunately, will refine them and bring them to a point where they're almost destroyed, but it will also bring them to their Messiah. Oh, how this great distress has been brought upon us, for we surely saw the anguish of his soul upon Calvary's tree when he pleaded, but we would not hear our Lord Jesus. And yet he calls once again to undeserving you and undeserving me. It has to be admitted, and I'm the first one to admit this, that the distress of the brothers as well as the distress of Israel was self-inflicted. As I said a few sermons ago, we cannot say that what has happened to them was not self-inflicted. It was. But for both of them, the distress will come to an end in the presence of their long-estranged brother. Our second thought today, the Lord who weeps, verse 22 through 27. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Reuben never agreed to the deed of harming Joseph. While the others had him in the pit and they finally sold him off to the Midianites, Reuben was the one that was out in the fields. He was tending to his flocks and he was probably thinking of a way to get him out of the pit and to restore him to Jacob. He has specifically told them, don't harm the boy. And he gives the reason for it right here. It says, Vegam damo And therefore his blood, behold, it is required. What is he saying? Reuben remembered the words of God, which were spoken to Noah 640 years earlier. The flood was over, the ark was opened, and Noah built an altar, and there he made an offering to the Lord. And after he did so, the Lord said these words to him, Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Reuben was certain that divine justice was now required because of what they did. 
Whether he was dead or not, they had consigned him to whatever fate, including death, a slave would face. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man for the one dead. Whoever sheds man's blood, the life of another, by man his blood shall certainly be shed. Reuben pled with them, but they wouldn't listen. But this may explain why another action is going to be taken by Joseph in a couple verses, who, though speaking through an interpreter, understands every single thing that is going on around him right now. Verse 23, but they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. At this time in history, scholars believe that the languages between the Hebrews, Canaan, Egypt, and Syria were all very similar. Most people could understand others as well. Somebody in Florida might understand somebody from Boston or from some other foreign city. But Joseph was probably speaking some royal dialect or pretending that he didn't know any Hebrew at all. Whatever the situation, they were speaking and they had no idea that Joseph understood them. But that was enough for Joseph to finally lose himself because he does understand them. Verse 24, and he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. Despite his treatment of the past, and he was mistreated, Joseph's heart never hardened towards his own brothers. And now that the truly remorseful words of Reuben, as well as the other brothers have come out, he can no longer stand the emotions which have arisen. And so he turned himself away from the moment and he broke down in tears. When Peter heard the crowing of the cock, he went outside and he wept. When Jesus rode towards Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday, he wept over the city. And in Revelation, when John realized the sad, sad situation that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll before him or even to look at it, the Bible says that he wept and wept. Emotions are the very shallowest part of us. And that's why we never, never, never establish doctrine based on emotions. When we read the Bible, we have to read it impassionately. As soon as we start inserting our emotions into the Bible, we err theologically because we now assume control over the word of God rather than what God is impassionately trying to show us. However, emotions show us the deepest seat of who we are at the same time. Joseph's longing for his family never ended and the moment became too much to bear. But Jesus tells us this in Matthew 5 verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Joseph's time of mourning will continue, but the end is now in sight. The long night is almost at a close and the joy of a new dawn lies ahead. And that just makes me think of Jesus because, you know, we're coming to this point that Jewish people are back in Israel, but they have to go through the tribulation period. And the reason why is because Jesus said, you shall not see me again until you call on the name of the Lord. He has spoken and he cannot violate his own word because he's God. And so they must call on him before he returns. And that means that they must go through the tribulation period. And imagine if Joseph is weeping over his brothers, who he, he could just reveal himself to him right then, but because he knows that a time of testing must be accomplished, imagine Jesus. He's God, but he's also a human being. Imagine him looking down on Israel today and weeping. And I bet you, I bet you he is. These are his brothers. These are his people who he came from. And he desperately wants them to call on him. And yet they haven't done it. And that is the picture that we should be seeing right here. The emotions of Joseph are the emotions of Jesus over his own brothers. And yet they are going to have to go through some very difficult times before they realize it. Verse 24 continues. And he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. I got to tell you, you get verses like this and scholars just go crazy. Everybody has an opinion as to why Simeon was the one who was bound and kept behind. Some traditions, and this is not in the Bible, but some traditions say that it was he who was the main instigator in tossing Joseph into the pit and then selling him. Others say that it was because he was the oldest son of those who had agreed to the plan. Reuben is the oldest, but remember, he didn't consent to it. And Joseph heard Reuben's words, which exonerated him just a moment ago. This then makes the most sense. But I would suggest that the name Simeon itself gives us insights into what's happening. Because when God gives a name, he asks us to reflect on why that name is given. His name means he who hears. And this is a perfect picture of Israel not yet hearing the truth. They're bound up in prison. 
Again and again in the New Testament, Jesus says this, he who has ears and ear, let him hear. The brothers were not ready to hear and Israel is not ready to hear as well. Now, if it's this or if it's for some other reason, it says he was bound right before their eyes. This was done to remind them that the last time that they saw him was in this condition. It was also to remind them that they faced the exact same fate if they tried to come back without following through with his command. It is what we might call a speaking act. In other words, the action speaks for itself. Our third thought today, what has God done to us? Verse 25, then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. Now, there are a few different things which are happening here that you might not notice in the English. First, Joseph commands the, the servants to fill the sacks with grain, but the word for sacks here is kalit, okay? That would be a completely different type of container than the other sack where the money and the animal feed went. That other type of sack is the Hebrew word sack. It's where we get our word sack today, okay? Joseph commands that the kali for the food be filled with bar, purified grain, then to put the money from each man's sack along with the animal's fodder, okay? And finally, to give them provisions for the journey. In other words, they would have sealed containers for the household grain, they would have sacks for the animal food, and they would probably have a take-along bag with prepared food for something to snack with on the way back to Canaan. In all, he is completely supplying their needs for every step of this journey and doing it without any payment at all. Even though he has been very harsh in his attitude towards them, his care for them as his brothers is still evident. But the obvious question that every person here should ask, right from this verse here, is why did he return the money to their sacks? If you haven't asked that, then you need to say to yourself, when I'm reading the Bible, I need to ask questions of the Bible because that, that is one of the most obvious questions that we should try to think of. Why would he do this? The Jewish scholar, I read all these commentaries, and one Jewish scholar gave a rather insightful analysis, and I think he's probably correct. He says that Joseph felt it impossible to bargain with his father and his brethren for bread. Okay, that's Baumgarten, a Jewish scholar. He's right, but I don't think he went far enough with this explanation. The money they brought to him in some way included the money that they received for selling him in the first place. I looked, you know, I get curious about these things, and so I looked, and the very last time that silver, or the Hebrew word kesef, is mentioned in the Bible was when Joseph was sold. Listen to this. This is from chapter 37. How many sermons ago? Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. And since then, silver has not been mentioned anywhere in all of these chapters. And wealth is one of those things that remains even when it's spent. In other words, if we earn $50, that's added to our wealth. That same $50 is a part of our wealth, even if it's spent on something like shoes or for food. The $50 remains as a part of what we own, though it's in a different form. What they think that they are buying food with this money to live on is something that Joseph will not sell. It is by necessity, and it must be a gift or it becomes an exchange for payment for what he was actually sold for. And if you see Jesus Christ in that picture, then you know exactly where we're going with this. I certainly hope you see that. Verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. Okay, this is the third time that grain has been mentioned in today's sermon. In verse 19, Joseph said, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. Then in the previous verse, it says, then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain. And now it says, so they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed from there. But in the Hebrew, as I explained last week, two different words are used. First, Joseph says to take shever. Then he gives a command to fill their containers with bar. Then it says that they loaded up with shever. It's as if they disobeyed Joseph or something. It's not bar. Shever gives the idea of a kernel that is broken to get out the grain. Bar, on the other hand, is purified. It's been threshed and it's been winnowed. What is the sense of using both types of grain in this way unless it's telling us something about the work of Christ for the people of Israel? 
Both types of grain are mentioned, as I said in last week's sermon, and I cited the verse. They're in Amos 8, both in one verse. So they're not being used synonymously. There is a distinct meaning for both of these types of grain. And there is also the consideration that it's about a 200-mile journey that they've been on. There would have been many, many servants with them and their animals, all of this that went along on this journey. This would be a journey enough to get grain to last the entire camp of Jacob for about six months and also have enough grain to sow in the fields if the famine were to stop. But only the brothers are mentioned. God is asking us to focus on them, the brothers of Joseph, who also picture the tribes of Israel. Joseph is already the ruler. He has already endured the pit. Jesus is already our ruler. He's already endured the tomb. And now Joseph is working to be reconciled to his brothers and to care for them. And Jesus is working to be reconciled to Israel and to be restored to them. Everything about this points to Israel of today coming back to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something. I bring this up from time to time because it's such a sore spot with me. There are doctrines known as praetorism, which means uh, everything is fulfilled in the Bible. Praetor, before, before things. The Bible is fulfilled except the return of Jesus Christ. And that's tied in with something called replacement theology, which says that the church has replaced Israel. Okay, I got to tell you something. These doctrines are so far from reality and so far from the pictures which the Bible gives that it's incomprehensible that people believe them, especially with Israel back in the land. What God is picturing here could not be clear. But I tell you, I typed this sermon seven weeks ago, six or seven weeks ago. I do them way in advance so that if I have errors in my thinking, I'll catch it before I get to the week that I'm going to be preaching, okay? So while I was sitting there, I was thinking of reasons why people would still hold today to praetorism and to replacement theology. And here are five reasons that I came up with. And I want to give these to you. And I'm going to tell you something funny that I love when this happens. I'm going to preach on something that I typed seven weeks ago. And that week I hear something which gives me more insights into it. The first one is an agenda. Okay, people have an agenda. We have an anti-Israel Israel agenda in the world today. You know, we had it at the time of Hitler. It wasn't really Israel, but it was the anti-Jews. But now we have anti-Israel everywhere. We have Jews that speak against Israel. And you think, why would they do that? They are pro-Palestinian, they're pro-Muslim. And this week, I'm listening to Dennis Prager. And I don't listen to him often because I only listen in the, the car and I don't drive a lot. But I'm listening to Dennis Prager, who is a Jewish man. And he is on from 2 until 3 o'clock opposite Rush Limbaugh every single day. He's a very, very intelligent man. He's a Jew. He's not a Christian Jew. But he is speaks almost solely on moral issues. He's a very moral man, and he understands morality in a way that most of us could never even perceive. And he loves to have Christians on. He loves to have Jewish people on, authors on. He's got a male-female hour on a Wednesday afternoon. If you have problems in your marriage, listen to the guy. He is very intelligent. And he had a Jewish guy on this week. And Dennis Prager, as he does from time to time, I've heard him say this before, he asks people, um, he says, one of the questions that I get most commonly asked, me, speaking of himself, is why are so many Jews so left in this country? Why are they in the, the very extreme left and why are they anti-Israel? And he gives them some reasons, but he proposed the question to this Jewish man who had written this book that he was highlighting that day. And the guy said, well, there's a couple reasons why. He said, there is the, uh, what we would call the self-loathing Jew. And there, I thought about that, and there's really only two categories of people that you ever hear are self-loathing. One is Jews, and one is white males. I mean, you know, I, I just don't want to be because everybody hates me. But mostly Jews, that term is applied to. And this is a Jew that's saying this. He says, we have our self-loathing Jews. They, they hate that they are blessed by God, that they're exalted in their thinking, in their, their relationships and all of these things. And so that's one reason. But he said, I think there's another reason, which is even more profound. And Dennis Prager was kind of astonished when he heard this because he'd never heard it before. This guy said, back in the 1800s, if you wanted to be hip as a Jew, you converted to Christianity. And there are a lot of Jewish people that became great Christian scholars that weren't really Christians. It wasn't in their heart, but they did this because it was the hip thing to do. Christianity is the big religion of America. And so to become a part of this, this thing that's going on, they convert. Well, Dennis Prager, as well as this gentleman, both agreed that 
um, uh, Christianity has been supplanted in America with ultra-liberalism, the anti-God movement, the, uh, the, the things that are associated with that. And now in order to be hip as a Jew, because there are these people that just don't like themselves, they convert into these extreme ideologies which include despairing Israel, the only haven that they have left in the world. Okay, And so this is his analysis of that. And it's an agenda which is actually being perpetrated by the world against Israel, including Jewish people. So that's the first reason. I got a little long in there, but that was a very important insight that that guy gave. A second reason why people would hold this is tradition. We have churches that say that the church has replaced Israel. And it's become clear that that's not the case, but they don't want to give up on their tradition. And a good example of this is people that struggle with the church denomination they're in. They know that the denomination is departed from Christ, but they still go because they like the liturgy. They like the people they worship with. They like the, uh, the ambiance and all of these things. And so they hold to tradition and they depart from what is sound theology because of that. There's a third reason which comes from the second. It's pride. It's the greatest sin. It's the sin of the devil. It's the sin of us wanting to be like God and eating of the fruit in the Garden of Eden. I am a teacher of the Bible. I'm in a uh, traditional church which teaches these doctrines, and I know they're wrong, but I am not going to admit it. Another pastor on Facebook this week posted something. The hardest thing in the world to do is to admit something that you're wrong about something to your wife. And uh, I went back and I said, no, no, no. I said, the hardest thing to do of all is to admit that you're wrong to your congregation. I said, there's been a couple times where I have sat in a, uh, a sermon. Actually, it was at a church on the beach, and uh, I've preached, and I realized I was wrong on it. And I can think of two specific times, and they were very minor issues. They were not doctrinal in nature, but they were very minor. But I felt so anguished that I had said something that wasn't appropriate in the sermon. The next week, I went and said, I want, you to, I want to clarify this. I want to make sure that you understand that I was wrong on this. And he said, you know what, I've done that four or five times in my many years of preaching. And I told him that that is one that if I knew nothing else about you than that you had done that, I would appreciate you as a human being because you're willing to set aside pride. And the problem with Reformed theology that the church has replaced Israel is pride. That's one of the greatest hindrances to getting this doctrine squashed when it's obvious that it's not true. Another one is blindness. Paul speaks about it in Romans 9 through 11. The Jews are blinded to the truth of their Messiah, but that implies that the Christians are too. Because if we know that it's up to the Jews to call on Jesus Christ in order for Christ to return, what would every Christian on earth be doing? They'd be out telling the Jews, you need to accept Christ so we can go be with them. It would be the, the, the passion of our souls. But we have been blinded to the Jewish state just as the Jews have been blinded to their Messiah. And that is another reason for this. And there's a final reason. It's the Jews themselves. They simply have not yet called on Jesus Christ, and they're unwilling to do so for all of the reasons that I've given here. Agendas, tradition, pride, and blindness. And the fact that they are the great people that are, you know, righteous of themselves in their own codification of their law. How do you determine righteousness? It's by deeds. It's by certain things that they do. And they can't put that pride aside. They can't put the tradition aside. So all five of those reasons are all tied up in exactly what we're looking at in this verse right here. It's a very interesting concept. Verse 27, but as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. The nine brothers are at their first night stopping place. And one of them opens the sack to get some fodder out to give to his donkeys. <clears throat> right there at the mouth of the sack is the money. In Genesis 43, we saw, we, we will see that because the money is found in his sack, the rest of them are going to check and they're going to find it in theirs too. But right now, only one realizes it. In this verse, though, which is very interesting, this is going to come out in about seven sermons. It is very interesting. In this verse right here, a different word for sack is now used. It's the word amtachat. Then you wouldn't get this because we've used three words for sack and it's always translated sack in English, so you wouldn't get this. But in Hebrew, it's a completely different word, which is used 15 times in the Bible, and all 15 of those times are in this account of Joseph and his brothers before they come to know who Joseph is as their brother. The word amtachat means to spread out. Okay, keep that in mind as we go through these sermons. Verse 28, so he said to his brothers, my money has been restored. 
And there it is in the mouth of my sack. Then their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? In utter surprise, this guy tells his brothers what happened. After this, the Hebrew says, their heart went out. Nowadays, we'd say that our heart was ready to leap out of our mouth. And believing that this is divine judgment, they ask why God did this to them. And this takes us right back to verse 19, where Joseph told them, if you are honest men, they must come back with Benjamin to get Simeon. And this puts a bit of trouble in that proposition for them. But the fact is, the Lord does not charge for what should be freely received. We see this explicitly noted in both testaments of the Bible. Money cannot purchase what God offers freely. Grain makes bread, and bread is what sustains us. Isaiah tells us about this in the 55th chapter of his book. And this is a verse that's right on the door of my truck, so you can go out and read it any time to refresh your memory. It's Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. These brothers are looking to purchase what Joseph offers freely. The money is returned because it cannot be a part of the deal. And so it is with Israel. They cannot earn what God has freely offered nor can any of us. The Bible says that we are saved by grace, through faith, and that works are excluded. And the reason why is because no man shall boast in the presence of God when he stands before him, saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is the constant theme of the Bible. God is pleased to lavish his grace upon us. Joseph is pleased to offer grain to his brothers in anticipation of them bringing Benjamin down to him. And the Lord is pleased to continue to sustain Israel until they call on Jesus, the son of the right hand, which is what Benjamin means, and to defend him at the expense of their own lives. And that's something that we're going to see in the coming pages of Genesis. Now, this is where we have to stop today. The brothers receive their grain. They also receive back their money. It is not money that the Lord wants, but truth, honesty, and a broken and contrite heart. What he offers freely can only be received by faith when you are ready to receive it. So if you're ready today to call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I would ask for just another minute to explain his wondrous work to you. It is the greatest gift of all, and it comes without money, and it comes without price. The Bible gives us a couple clues about our state as human beings. It says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That includes every person that has ever lived with the exception of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we've sinned. It's in us, it has infected us, and we die because of it. But more importantly than our physical death is our spiritual death. We are separated from God because of sin. We're spiritually dead, and it takes Christ to bring us to spiritual life. And the Bible says that, but... The gift of God, something that can't be earned. It's without money and it's without price. A gift is a gift. You can't even give a penny for it because then it's not a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what God wants is for us to understand that Jesus died for us. He can take care of our sin debt. He came back to life to prove that he's God and that he is fully capable of doing what the Bible says that he is doing for us. And finally, Paul writes that uh, all who call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. That's all that God asks is faith. I can't save myself. I want Jesus to be my Lord. I want him to cleanse me, purify me, take away my sin debt, revive me spiritually. And then the Bible says that at the moment we do that, we are sealed with God's Holy Spirit. It is a deposit. It is a guarantee. It is something that is sure, as sure as the fact that God is is the sureness of your salvation. It can never be taken away. It never will be taken away. God has promised and God will deliver. Our closing verse today comes from the 65th Psalm. And I want to tell you something about the 65th Psalm. I, uh, My Bible, the one that my mom gave me years ago, which I think is probably on the shelf in back. I've read the Bible many, many, many times. And one day I was just reading this one Psalm all by itself. And I actually wrote these words. This is so beautiful. It is 
maybe my favorite psalm in the Bible. It is astonishingly beautiful. And I want to tell you something else, which will upset some King James only person, but I really prefer the NIV version of the 65th Psalm. Uh, it, it, it is very well worded in the uh, NIV. But uh, here we go. This is Psalm 65, verse 9. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. Next week is Genesis 42, verses 29 through 38. It's called Not Thinking Clearly in the Land of Canaan. That'll be our 106th Genesis sermon. And uh, as a reminder to you, I kind of hinted this in our uh, first thought today, but I want to tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. And that second part is as important as it can be for those who have called on Jesus Christ. We call on him not just to be saved, but also to do great things for him. He's using you to further his kingdom. So remember that. Our poem today is called, The Lord Provides the Grain. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined away to the prison while off you trod. But you, go and carry grain for the famine of your houses where you abide, and bring your youngest brother to me when you come again. So then your words will be verified. And you shall not die, it will be well with you. And they did so, the thing they were instructed to do. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul that day, when with us he fervently pleaded, and we would not hear. We turned away, and so this distress has come upon us. His words were not heeded. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you in this way? Do not sin against the boy. I am praying, and you would not listen to my words that day. Therefore, behold, his blood is now of us required, and to us this terrible trial has transpired. But they did not know that Joseph, them, he understood, for he spoke to them through an interpreter, though his Hebrew was really good. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked, as his composure now he kept. And he took Simeon from them, one of the accused spies, and bound him right there before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command so they wouldn't lack to fill their grain, sacks with grain well supplied, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the ride. Thus he did for them, showing a tent of care. So they loaded their donkeys with grain, and off they departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money had been given back, and there it was in the mouth of his sack, a sight of confused enchantment. So to his brothers he said, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Oh, my head, this matter must be explored. Then their hearts failed them, each and every brother, and they were all of them sore afraid, and then saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? So they were dismayed. Such is the nature of a conscience which isn't right. When the memory comes to the troubled mind, the thoughts that chase us and make us uptight and tell past <laughs> deeds done to others in a way unkind. And yes, every such thing will be judged by our God. He will peer into our lives and render to us our due. So we should with care and caution in this life trod, living our lives for him in a manner upright and true. And when we fail, let us confess on bended knee with contrite heart. And God will in our moment of distress forgive us. Yes, divine mercy he will impart. Help us in our walk, O Lord, each and every day to honor you and live for you, never to fall away. Hallelujah and amen. Oh Lord, I thank you so much for these stories. I, I just, I cannot tell you how wonderful it is to live at this moment in human history where these stories are actually coming true before our eyes and why we have the honor of looking back on them from thousands of years ago and understanding them in the context of what's going on in the world. I thank you for the verse in Daniel that we looked at today as part of our prophecy update which showed us that knowledge would increase in the end times, and here it's gone exponentially in our lives. So we can see your hand in the Bible is your hand in the world as we live. What an honor, what a privilege, what a blessing. And yet it's also a time of great distress and woe. You know that this nation and many nations around the world have departed from you and uh, have rejected you. And I would pray for our nation now, for our leaders, for our president, and uh, those others that... Uh, control our destiny as Americans, that they would 
humbly get on their knees and repent and turn back to you. And Lord, I thank you that uh, you do hear our prayers and that you are merciful and gracious. I pray for each person in this church that they would uh, be blessed in the week ahead and that you take good care of them, meeting the needs that uh, need to be met, and whether they're financial or spiritual or emotional or mental, whatever, whatever needs are out there, that you would just help them through their week so that they can turn around and they can look up and praise you and say, thank you, thank you for the many blessings that I've received. And I would hope that they would be responsible to do that. Lord, you're great. You're great and you're glorious. You sent us your son, Jesus, to forgive us of our sins and to lead us to pass of everlasting righteousness. Help us to stay on those paths and to pursue you all the days of our life. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen.